All right, so we've been uh, working through a series since the beginning of September called Revive Us Again. And uh, the heart of this series has been really the, the promise of Second uh, Chronicles 7.14. This is really, there's a, a tremendous promise here from God, and really this has been our prayer through this series, that we would know what this, what this means and we'd experience this promise. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their land, heal their land. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and heal their land. And that's our, that's really, so this, this idea, even as we just sang, revive us again, God. We, we know that uh, we're not there yet. That really will never be there. And we, we really need to keep seeking this, this, uh, this idea of revival. And, not, and even to say the word revival can put all sorts of pictures in our head of what revival is. We can think of a, a tent uh, meeting where people are, this preacher comes in and all these different kind of crazy things are happening. That's not, that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a new sense of God's presence among us, that we would be revitalized in our, in our focus and our energy to follow him and to live out a life of obedience to Jesus. And so in many ways, this is a bit of an in-house discussion this morning. Um, we, wanna, we really want to keep looking at in different ways. What does it look like for God to, to really... Uh, be present in this community in a fresh way. And so if you're here this morning and you're not really, you're not really a Christian, you, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're still um, in process, maybe you're interested in still thinking through or investigating. Um, I, this, this morning's message and probably this series hasn't really been hitting you maybe with, the, with the, addressing the questions you're asking, but this is us trying to be authentic. This is us trying to be um, to decrease our hypocrisy as a people that desire to follow Jesus. Um, and so the, the fundamental, one of the fundamental understandings of Christianity is that we realize we're not, we have fallen short. That's, that's, a, that's a fundamental value, conviction of what it means to be a Christian. There's an awareness that we're not perfect, that we still have much further to go as individuals, but also as a church community. And so... Um, this is us trying to do better at that. And uh, so I'd, I'd invite you to listen, and, and, uh, and I hope there's things that are um, relevant to you even as we, as we do this. Um, but I just want to kind of preface that because I, I, I wouldn't want someone to think this isn't relevant to me in any way as I sit here wondering what Christianity is all about. But this is, this is us trying to, to grow. And so um, <clears throat> this morning we're going to be looking at a passage in Acts where the church in Antioch really started and began to grow and flourish. And uh, again, we've been looking at these uh, historical accounts of revival throughout history and really trying to learn what does this look like? What does this mean for us to experience this? Um, and as, as I'm about to read from Acts chapter 11, but as we go into, as we go into Acts, and really anytime you're thinking through any kind of uh, historical event. It's, you can get yourself into theological trouble pretty quickly if you start reading anything prescriptively rather than descriptively. Whoops. Sorry, Brian. Um, just going to do that. 
prescriptively meaning this passage is prescribing how things ought to go and how they always will go. So to, we, there's a lot of um, doctrine that can be formed in theology that can be formed, when we, especially in the book of Acts, where you read it as this is how God always does something, and this isn't happening unless these specific things are being done in the exact way that it was done. So you, the mentality begins to replicate exactly how things have been done in the past. To read it descriptively is really the attempt to... We, it's describing what God did. It's describing how he worked in this particular time and, and what happened. And there's still a lot you can get from that. There's still tons you can get from that, especially as you see accounts over and over again where patterns begin to emerge. And this is always present when God does something. So you can... It's not to say we can't learn anything from it. It's just to put to have caution that we're not to prescribing this is the specific way that things are done. I love, if you look at the, if you read the Gospels, the life of Jesus, he's always doing it, he's always working a miracle in a new way. I don't think he repeats the method in which he performs a miracle once. Um, and so, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's even, I think, something we can learn from that, that Jesus isn't, he's not looking, we, it's so easy to cling to a specific way of doing things as if that's the solution. But, in all of these things, we're coming to faith. We're going in our faith in the one who is able to do it. And so <clears throat> I just kind of say that as a, as a preface to this passage, and even as we try to uh, um, glean as much as we can from these examples in history. So Acts chapter 11, 19 to 30 is what we're looking at. And then the first three chapters, or the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. So Acts chapter 11. Starting in verse 9, it says, um, I would encourage you to read along. There's Bibles in front of you on the pews if you need that. Um, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. I just want to pause there for a moment and point out two quick things. The first is you'll notice that it says, scattered by the persecution. Uh, what's interesting is you'll see this throughout Acts often, and really throughout history, is that persecution leads to scattering of people, but also a scattering of the message that new people come to faith because of persecution. And over and over again throughout history, God uses persecution as a tool to accomplish the spreading of his word. And so I just want to, I think there's especially a, there's a temptation for us to be um, so guarded and attacking against the Christian, the church being persecuted, especially politically. When, when if there's any threat that the church might be persecuted, we, we really almost take an aggressive uh, pose against that, that as if that would be the worst thing in the world, that we would be treated unfairly. But it's just worth noting that over and over again, God uses persecution as a way to spread. And we, if we resist that, um, <clears throat> we, we could be actually missing out on what God has in store for us. And I think even the history of the Mennonite Brethren Church, which is what this church is, what denomination this church is a part of, there's a long history of that um, and great testimony to how uh, the church has responded to persecution. The second thing I just want to note um, is you'll notice that it's, there's no big names here. 
It just spread. Uh, it's not the apostles. It's not the, you know, the big 12 that spread it. Um, but it's just kind of unnamed followers of Jesus. And actually, throughout Acts, every single time a, uh, the, the apostle goes to a new town, there's believers there already. Um, it, so the point being that actually the, the message of Jesus, when the church began, spread rapidly through, through just kind of the unnamed followers of Jesus that were telling people about it. And I think we just have this perception, you know, it's always like the big, the big leaders, the big names, the names we recognize, those are the ones that were doing all the work. But actually, the news was spreading by everyone that was, that was calling themselves a disciple or a follower of Jesus. So I want to point those things out. Continuing on, verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, not just the Jews, but the Greeks, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named um, Agabus, stood up through the Spirit, predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And then skipping forward to Acts chapter 13, uh, we go back to the church in Antioch there. We're just going to read the first three verses. Now, in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were there worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called him. So after that, they had fasted and prayed. They placed their hands on them and sent them off. This is God's words to us this morning, and uh, I just want to work through some things that are present here. Um, just to give you some kind of context to this passage, the Acts is following the growth of the church, uh, that, that Jesus has just gone back up to heaven and he commissions his disciples that part of what it means to be faithful to what I'm calling you to is to go and, and not only live out in, in deed, but actually speak out in word who I am and what I've done and what this whole world is about. And so there's, I'm going to have a map there that's kind of a picture of this part of the world at this time. This is the, uh, where all of this is going on um, in, in uh, Israel, and the map looked different at the time. But uh, really, everything started in Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem was kind of the mother church. That's where it all. Ha- that's where everything went down at the beginning. That's where the, the official news of, of Jesus and the commissioning went out. And you can see Jerusalem's down in the, in the bottom corner there. And, every, and the news spread from there. As the persecution came on, the people scattered and the news spread of Jesus. Um, people telling them about what Jesus had done and his message to everyone. And um, it's in this passage that the church in Antioch, Antioch is further up right there, um, that the church, uh, Antioch was a significant trading city. It's, uh, it's the place I read in one commentary. It's the place where you're likely to bump into someone you know. Um, it's that kind of place. And it's here that this is uh, where a new group of believers start to form. And it started by um, primarily Jewish people who had come to realize who Jesus was and were telling people about that, believe who he was. And they started telling other Jews at first. They started to tell Jews who they would have been more comfortable with, the people that were like them. And they started to spread the message to them. But then it says um, that they started to share the news with the Greeks as well, the people that were not like them. The, the Greeks being anyone that basically is not Jewish and speaking Greek at the time. And so they're not only sharing it to the people they're comfortable with, but now they're starting to step out and share it with the people they would have, would have been a little bit, you know, they're the outsiders in a sense to, to the Jewish community at the time. And the church begins to grow to a point that the news of this church uh, way up in the north was making its way down to the mother church in Jerusalem in the south. And, you know, it's, sometimes we don't really get uh, the, how big of a deal that would have been for news to spread because of how connected and how easily it is for us to communicate. But for stories of, these, of this nature to spread from person to person, for the news to make it all the way back to an, a city quite... I mean, it's not that far, but at the time, if you want to walk it, it's pretty far... Um, is a, is a big deal, that things were happening and, it, and that people were taking note and wanting to talk about it. And so the church in Jerusalem hears about this. And they want to, their mindset is not, oh no, another comp- uh, church is starting up, they're going to take our people. They're going to, uh, you know, we have to learn what they're doing and copy it and do it better. That's not the, the mindset is, let's support this church. And so they send Barnabas who's described as a man in great character and, and gifting. He was probably a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem, and they send him away. Not to just go visit and say, great job, guys, we're thinking and praying about you. He goes there for a year. He moves to Antioch, and he gets Saul, which is Paul, um, who later becomes Paul. And uh, Paul is there, and they're teaching the church there. And they're working with them, and they're living with them, and they're coming along beside them. And, it's, uh, and during this time, Jerusalem sends more people, it says. And then and in response, the, the church is actually starting to grow up, and then the, and the, the church in Antioch sends gifts back to the church in Jerusalem, probably financial um, gifts that they're giving back to the other church. And this continues on for a while. Acts chapter 12 is not, it's not chronological order at this point. Luke kind of steps out of that, but he, and he kind of tells another story and then comes back to 13. And they are, 
they are, the Antioch church has grown to a place where they are now sending out leaders. They're sending out, they're commissioning out, they're giving away Barnabas. They're giving away Paul to go out and work. Um, and it, it's at this point in Acts that the, the focus shifts from the church in Jerusalem being kind of the, the center place of activity of people going out and spreading, and it actually shifts to Antioch. Now, Antioch becomes the place where Christians are being sent out, and uh, they go and they spread to different parts of the, um, the region. You can see even at the top, there's Galatia. That's a section of that part of the world where, you know, where we read the book of Galatians, and that's Paul writing a letter to the church that's there. The, the news of Jesus and people's willingness to, to believe this and submit to him and start living a life is, is being um, spread by the work of this church in Antioch. It becomes almost like the new mother church for the work of, of, uh, that God is doing in the, in the time of the church. This is where, this is where like, the whole history of the church began. We are here because of the work of of these people, in a sense. It's an incredible example of God radically transforming a community. I want to fast forward to another time in the church history. 1722. There's a man named Count Nicholas Zinzendorf. There's a profile pic of him there in the back. Got this off his Facebook um, <laughs> There he is, the count himself. Uh, he was a, a believer in, in Germany, and, uh, and he, he had a heart for the church, and he began to open up his home to the wave of persecuted church of Christians that were, uh, that were all around Europe. There's different, at the time, the Protestant had kind of split from the Catholic church, and there's Unfortunately, all these like really ugly divisions in, in the church history where um, denominations are really against each other and their disagreements are actually violent. And, uh, and there's a lot of persecution at this time. And he has a heart for the church. He's a heart for the unity of the church. And he opens up his home and he opens up really a community to welcome in these persecuted Christians. And he, he makes us a place of healing, of restoration for the persecuted Christians at the time. And they... And he sets up uh, institutions to help the poor around them. They're working uh, for the good of the community around them. They start up a printing press. They start printing the scriptures and, and spreading that around. And news of this community spreads throughout Europe. And persecuted Christians from all over are coming. And the community is growing. And like I said, because there's all these different theological understandings and, and um, denominations where quite different and, and aggressive about that difference. Uh, bringing those people together now in a new community created all these different conflicts. And uh, Zillendorf just had a heart for the unity of the church. And he worked tirelessly. And one of the things it says he did is that he moved out of his home into the center of the community to be with the people in the conflict. And they worked. And he started praying for the, for the community and that this would be a place that God would use. And he started a 24-hour prayer vigil. Not that he himself was praying 24 hours, but that their people were committed to praying for 24 hours, that they would take shifts praying for God to do a work in this community. And he continued this prayer vigil for 
over a century of 24 hours of continuous prayer that this this community was committed to the work. That's, um, oh, I put that number in a different part of my notes. It's a lot of hours, which I will tell you specifically what it is later. (laughs) And so they committed to praying. And it says that during a time of worship among the Moravians, this is a a, a quote from, from an account there. It says, Their hearts were set on fire with new faith and love towards the Savior, and likewise with a burning love for, towards one another, which moved them so far out of their own accord, they embraced one another in tears, and they grew together into a holy union among themselves. So raising again, as it were, out of the ashes, that ancient unity of the Moravian brethren. They became known as the Moravian, the Moravians. And says a unity broke out among them, and there is a common mission formed. And over the course of the history of this community, over the next 150 years, the the Moravian missionary movement was one of the most influential um, movements in church history. They sent out over 2,000 missionaries to the hardest and least reached areas of the world. And not only did they did that, but they worked for the good of the community they were in. And they, they sent people into their, to their region and to their nation to, to go and teach about Jesus. And they had profound impact, not only in the work of the missionaries themselves, but the, the, um, or directly, but indirectly, they influenced people and guys like John Wesley um, and uh, William Carey, who's known as the father of modern missions, were impacted greatly by the, the movement of this community. And so, two different accounts of, of uh, a community being revived. And so, what can we learn from, this, from these accounts? What, what does it mean, that the title of this message is, God, what happens when God's presence moves into a community? That's what we're looking at. When God's presence moves into community. How can we respond? What are some things that, that we can see that are there? That they're essential ingredients to, to what this looks like. It's the necessary fruit and what's our response? The first thing is, and I'll just say these are, neat, these, are neat, these are things we need to be willing to do if we want to see a revival in this church, in our own hearts individually, but in, but in this church of Cornerstone Community Church. The first is, and you're going to hear this over and over again in the series, and hopefully over and over again in the history of this church, is that we need to be willing to wait on our knees for God to work. We have to. Without exception, this is how every revival in church history, every great movement of God has started. And we, I know we've said that before, but I want to keep showing this over and over again. If you look at the church in Acts, they fasted and prayed together. It mentions specifically that the Lord's hand was on them. There's awareness of God's activity over them. The Moravians prayed for 24 hours, and here's my note, that's 864,000 hours of prayer over the course of one century. God is very interested and persistent that we understand that he is God and we are not. 
He's very interested in us understanding that. And that doesn't come from a place of arrogance and that I'm this and you're not. That is coming from a place of truth and love. That this is how, this is the truth of the world. That I am God and you are not. And that's okay. You can't do it. And that's okay that you can't do it. But I can. It says in, in Scripture that God is opposed to the proud. That's a bit of a scary thought. He's not just like, uh, you know, whatever, I don't like the proud. Don't like those guys. He's actively opposed to the proud. Any pride in us, he's against. Because pride is, I don't need you, God. Pride is, I can do this on my own, God. Pride is... Cornerstone Community Church, we don't need to pray because we've got money and we're cool. (laughs) He has to break that in us and he will do what it takes out of love to break down our pride and self-sufficiency until we're willing to let go. We need to be willing to wait on our knees for God. But the exact same time, and you can see this over and over again, we need to be willing to go outside of what's comfortable. The believers in Acts went to the Gentiles. That, that's when the movement began to spread. They, it said that many of them had been going to the Jews, but then some went to the Gentiles. I, I don't know exactly what that discomfort looked like, but I know that they were the Gentiles were distinctively different than the Jews. And any time there's differences and you feel like you're going outside of your community, there's going to be, you're going to be dealing with issues of comfort. Zinzendorf moved out of the comfort of his home and he moved into the, the midst of the conflict where people were actually trying, they're beginning to think about how they can like kill each other. And he moved in the midst of that, out of the comfort, Comfort is a very dangerous idol that blinds us to what God may want to do in our life. And we just, we are so unaware of the comforts that we have in this culture. And we just need to keep on confronting them and confronting them. And so I don't know who an outsider in your life is. The reality is an outsider for you might be different than an outsider for me. But if you can't immediately think of someone that a group of people or someone specifically in your life that's an outsider, um, I know they're there, and I'd, I'd encourage you to reflect on that. Who are the people in my life that I would that are kind of outside of my comfort zone? Those may be the people that God's actually wanting you to grow in faith and going to speak out to, and build relationship with. The last thing that we need to be willing to do is we need to be willing to leave this community. I have a, I'm someone that didn't grow up in this church community. I, uh, I, I attended a, growing up at a church called St. Anne's Community Church near Smithville. I have come into this community as an as a outsider, in a sense. And uh, I have come to profoundly appreciate the community that is Cornerstone Community Church. Um, I know that many people do not have positive experiences with the church, and I know that there are there is 
still ugliness and sin in our in our in our community here. Um, but even coming out of the retreat, I was I was uh, just kind of this was on my heart again. I was we went away for a, a church retreat last weekend at Camp Crossroads, and just being there, I had a new sense of gratitude for for this specific community. Just looking around, there were many moments where I was just struck by by uh, just how how much of a blessing it is to be in the such a variety of people and the the ways in which God has used different people in this, in this church, in my life. Very grateful. But you'll see in the church in Acts and in even the story of Zinzendorf that, that even this thing that is good and positive and, uh, and we should appreciate and value can become an idol. And we need to be willing, as you see in this, to even give up this thing. That is Cornerstone Community Church and your involvement in this community. That God may be calling you to another community. That's probably not the best popular message to, to preach on a Sunday morning. But I really believe it's true that God may be calling you to a work that draws you out of this community. And we need to be able to say, God, whatever it is um, that's stopping us from stepping out, um, we, need, we need to have open hands and, and give it up to you. And so I know that I'm sure it would have been hard for um, the church in Jerusalem to send Barnabas. I'm sure it would have been. I'm sure for this Moravian community, sending out all these people would have, been, it would have impacted the community. But the kingdom mindset of the, of the people says that this is just one, of a, this is one community of a larger community that God is at work. And so I'm not trying to say, hey, you should get out of here. <laughs> I'm just saying that we can't even let the goodness of what this is be a barrier to what God may be calling us to. So um, I want to bring this to an end here. One of the things I was wrestling with even in preparing this is that, that we're kind of describing what happens when God does a revival. We, we still need to ask the question, uh, what brings about a revival? And, and the, I think the answer is, is kind of one and the same. Is that the things that God is calling us to is, a, is actually going to be the fruit and the things we need to do to make this happen. It's both the evidence and the reason for. And just as a general kind of insight into, into following Jesus, I think, we need, I think so often we get stuck at a place where um, I don't... Where I don't the, the, Excuse of, I don't really feel like doing this, becomes increasingly valid in our minds. I don't really feel like going to a prayer meeting. You know, I don't really, really feel like doing this. And that becomes increasingly valid reason why we shouldn't, because somehow our personal, you know, authenticity of, of whether we're into this or not um, trumps anything else. And I really believe that too often we think being obedient to Jesus requires this sense of feeling that then leads to obedience. But there, there is a sense, and I, think, and I think one leads to the other, actually. We reverse the order so often. Is that regardless of how I feel right now, God, I still have the decision of my will. I still have my will to bring to you. And regardless of how I'm feeling, I'm going to do this. Because even though I don't want to, 
the, the act of the will is actually a, a sense that God is, is seeing and honoring. And I have seen over and over again that even when I decide that I don't, I'm not feeling it and I'm going to do it, the feeling follows our will. So often that's the case. I don't really feel like going. I, there's nothing spiritual I'm feeling about going to this prayer meeting. But just the act of going and being there, actually I come away with a new sense of, of uh, dependency on God that I didn't have, that all of a sudden the feeling is aligning with the, the decision. And so I just think that we reverse that. We think that, the, that one has to follow the other, but I think it's reversed so often. And so what are the things we have to do? Well, it's the things that they were doing. And I think it's worth noting that the first, this is the first place that we see followers of Jesus being called Christians. Did you pick up on that? That before this time, they were like this, and that's just what we, that's what we think, that's what they've always been called, but that wasn't the case. They were just followers of Jesus, disciples. Um, but this is the first time where they're actually called uh, Christians, which is Christians. It's coming from that word Christ. And Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. And which is another word, it means like anointed one. And what that meant in the Jewish context is that they were the God's, God's anointed king, that the followers of Jesus were actually like the king's men. And it was almost done kind of in a, a mockery way. These are the, like the king, Jesus is the king of the Jews. And these are the king's men. Or the king's people. And that can be a, that can be an insult, depending on who the king is, I guess. If you were to say that uh, they were, as an example, a basket of deplorables, for those that follow the news... (laughs) It's not really meant as a compliment. Um, that's uh, what that Hillary Clinton called the followers of Donald Trump. She said they're a basket. Of, that's the label she's giving people that would follow that person as their leader, as their king. And so really the, what that really is speaking to is the nature of the king himself. And so to be called the king's people is either an insult or an honor. It depends on the nature of the king. And this is the place where we saw, uh, I, I think it's worth noting too, that Barnabas arrives, and what does he say? It says, he saw what the grace of God had done in the lives of the people there. He saw what the grace had done. Why do we talk about grace every single week? Because we believe that grace has power. That the grace shown to us in Jesus, which ultimately reveals the heart of God, has power to change a heart. And when you can change a heart, you can change an individual. When you can change an individual, you can change a community. If you change community, you can change a nation. And so they saw what the grace of God had done. And so we are not, that's why we come here every single week, is to remind ourselves of the grace of God. Because your, your, your default heart motive is not to rest in grace, it's to earn. And so you need to hear this over and over again. That it's not an insult to be called the king's people. Because our king is much different than the kings of this world. Our king does not come to condemn the guilty. 
It's not why he came to throw in your face all the garbage that you've done, all the things you've thought, and all the ways you mess up and fall short. That's not why he came to shove it in your face. He came to forgive you. That's why the king came. We have a king that does not belittle the broken and say, why don't you have it all together? Why are you still wrestling with that? Why haven't you gotten over that yet? You know, why, why, you know, why aren't you there yet? That's not the message of the king. The king comes to heal and restore. We, we have a king that does not rest himself up on a tower and rule with power and say, all you guys, you're weak. He comes and he actually enters into our weakness. He gives up power and offers it to us. This is the nature of the king that we serve. And if we want to continue to grow in what it means to be the king's people here at Cornerstone Community Church, we need to keep looking at the king and keep trusting that the power of grace that's seen here has the power to change and overcome time. And you know what? Even, even like not knowing how that ways, um, plays itself out practically is okay. Sometimes you just have to have faith in grace. <laughs> Trust in grace that God keep on working on me, keep on working on us as a people. Let's pray. Father, would you continue to reveal yourself to us, God? We, we have so many messed up visions of you. We have um, so many ways that the message of this world, but even the voices of our heart and mind can confuse us and, and uh, make you into something you are not. And so, God, I pray this morning, would you give us a fresh view of Jesus the King, a King that is unlike any other king of this world, that you're different um, than us. And God, we so often think that we've, we're the ones that know everything the best. And yet, uh, God, we don't want to make you into our image, but we, we want to see you as you really are. And so, God, challenge us as a community as we continue, not just this morning, but as we continue to seek you, God, would you... Show us the ways in which we're not doing that. We admit our blindness. God, some, there's, there's sin that we see. There's resistance that we're aware of. And when you bring conviction there, but God, would you even open our eyes wider to see the areas in which we're not even uh, seeing this as it really is. And so we trust in grace again this morning. We trust in, in Jesus. And we, we ask that you would that you would work in us again new this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.